0: Ladies and gentlemen, Divine Lions and Lionesses, I am Brad Wozni, and
1: I am so grateful and honored to be assembled by, in the company of these incredible men, warriors, each of them, men who are also healers and creators and builders of our time. And what we're here to do is to pay tribute to brave men and women who have literally paid with their lives the ultimate sacrifice in conflicts around the world, going all the way back through our history, And since this is in particular to pay tribute to those who have served on D-Day, as this is literally coming up for the D-Day ceremony, we hope that you, your sons, your daughters, your sisters, your brothers, your young ones are able to watch this tribute show and by very virtual of that, learn experiences directly from the men assembled here who have hundreds of years of experience between them. Who are all combat veterans? I am not in the Canadian Army. I was never deployed for combat. And they are also here still serving today, right now, humanity in our final special war, this war to end all wars, as Commander in Chief Donald Trump has said so eloquently recently, West Point graduation speech in his last term. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to start this off here for many of you who are in America, and around the world. With a, something that is really deeply poignant and also might move you to tears. And you may also want to have a box of tissues nearby as we play this and get this going. Ladies and gentlemen, this is from the US Army band right now. We move to it. And please, if you are wearing headdress and you are watching this, remember because this is a moment of silence to respect all from all countries who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. to have these gentlemen introduce themselves. And as it could, <laughs> in the military, it goes by order of rank. So therefore, we go to the colonel. Colonel, please, if you will.
2: Uh, n- Hello, everyone. My name is Chuck Sellers, uh, Army veteran, t- uh, just shy of 26 years, most of it done in um, in special operations, special courses units. Um, the uh, last 17 years I was in, I was with uh, Delta Force, first S-F-O-D-Delta uh, and retired out of there in 2004 as the deputy commander. And I'm honored to be on this panel with uh, these distinguished gentlemen here.
1: And would you just say a little bit of the experience where you've served as well Um, yes, um, somebody else too? um First, my
2: first uh, actual operational assignment was in Lebanon in 1983, 84. During the time frame when the uh, Marine barracks got blown up there by, near the airport, um, after, um, after Lebanon, uh, I ended up in, uh, I've done time and did t- a couple of tours in Bosnia, uh, culminating, culminating in the, um, in uh, 99 and 2000 uh, there, uh, did tours in Colombia in the drug wars. Um, against Pablo Escobar, I was there when Pablo, uh, when the Colombians took down Pablo Escobar, and then uh, two times in the first Gulf, or two first Gulf War, and two times in Afghanistan in 2001 and 2002 as a uh, Joint Special Operations Task Force commander.
1: Thank you very much for your service, Colonel Sellers, and Lieutenant Colonel yeah. Cartabosi.
3: Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on board. Um, uh, to use uh, Colonel Sellers' expression, just shy of 25 years, quarter of a century in the Army. Mostly special ops, but also in other units, mech, INF, parachute. Have we lost something? We're good. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool, sorry. <laughs> uh, time in uh, Southeast Asia, Papua New Guinea, uh, the Middle East, Kuwait, and then uh, retired in 2004. And uh, then, as an older man, was wandering through the Afghan with uh, the United Arab Emirates Special Operations Command as a contractor, and we took them into town and uh, helped them step up their game, so to speak.
1: Amazing! Thank you for your service. And also now, Major. And uh, I'm Jim
0: O'Connor. I'm the class of '76 from the Military Academy. I. Uh, Spent a little time uh, with the Special Forces unit, or Special Forces, excuse me, while I was assigned to the 36th Infantry in Germany. I was a company commander and almost met Chuck in uh, Lebanon in uh, 1983, which would have been pretty cool. I did 20 years. uh, I'm airborne qualified. I was also a... uh, my alternate specialty my was Operations Research Systems Analysis. I'm the one who did the study that put the 120-millimeter gun on the tank, which was really helpful when Gulf War One and Gulf War 2 uh, I'm currently a bishop in the Underground Orthodox Church. I also do uh, exorcisms, and I think life is very interesting, and these are the most interesting times a man or woman could live in.
1: Indeed. Jim Major, thank you very much for your service, and as a bishop now, literally removing demons off this plant in the spiritual war. And we move over now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to Mark, currently not using his last name for good reason, but he has joined us nonetheless today. Thank you for your service, sir. Mark, go ahead. Why don't you just share
4: with everybody your background here, too? Hi, guys. Good to be here. Um, Yeah, so I, I sort of my, my family, they're all, they're all military. Um, so great grandfather, he was world war one grandfather. He was world war two D day as well. Uh, and he got shot. Uh, um, then my dad, he was airborne forces. So he, he served over, over 30 years. Um, so, uh, my mom was actually in the, in the forces as well. And, um, so I, I ended up joining as well, uh, I was, I was 16 when I, when I first joined, uh, that was in 89. And then, um, a few years went by, uh, Bosnia, uh, so we served in, uh, Bosnia, Kosovo. And then I went through SF selection for SRR, um, that was in, uh, in 97 and then served with, with that unit a lot of time in Northern Ireland, but, uh, also a, f- a few other places, uh, left that around 2005 and then um i went and did a couple of other things for still working for the government and um a lot of time in the middle east and uh, africa and all those types of places
0: oh thank you very much for your service mark i truly appreciate it
5: and aj yeah thanks for having us on again brother and uh so good to see so many uh Handsome faces um shining their light. It's great. And um and been around as we mentioned before, so many different men from around the world that uh, are doing God's work like so it's, it's amazing to be a part of. And uh yeah, so to introduce myself uh to those who've never seen my work before, uh, I was in the British Army for 15 years, uh, split up into two parts. I took a break out and went to the uh and moved out to the lovely uh coast east coast australia to the gold coast for a bit took a little uh break and then my sins rejoined um but in that time i served in afghanistan uh on operation herrick in iraq uh as well uh, and also in sierra, sierra leone um and again the whole experience for me was uh very eye-opening I, was, I asked a lot of questions while i was there things didn't stack up about a lot a lot of things um and that kind of like led me to leave the forces because like I just felt it wasn't the right place energetically. Like I just didn't fit in. If you know what I mean, like where I was going. Um, so I left in 2018, um, and then I went to work at Port and Down for two years, um, where, as many people know, do the biological chemical testing on things, and happens to be on the the outskirts of Salisbury, where the notorious Novichok situation happened um and like uh, the, all those experiences are very eye-opening experiences and um I felt the need to go and uh be myself and work for myself which I did so I left there uh right at the start uh of all the lockdowns so it, the pattern just emerged and uh that was off the back of a, a really good um Sierra Leone uh project that I did with a, an amazing charity um and that's when I started seeing everything kind of really unfold for what it is And it led me on my journey to starting a podcast, uh, getting loads of amazing people on. Um, Half half of the guys on here have been on the podcast a few times. And, um, you know, it's been been amazing getting that information out there to people um, in a different light and kind of like um, breaking all the information down, all the optics and everything else like that. So that's kind of like, that's kind of my journey. And that's what I focus a lot of my attention on now is raising the human consciousness while breaking down the military optics so people can see what we're really involved in here.
1: Thanks for your service and also for your grandfather. We're definitely going to chat about him mm. and other people in their lineage here as we move forward on the D-Day tribute show. Um, and then Derek Johnson,
6: please go ahead, sir. So yeah, I'm Derek Johnson. Uh, I was Specialist Johnson in the United States Army. I was a 14 Sierra uh, Air and Missile Defense. So uh, as we were talking about pre-show, love you. Obviously, we wouldn't see that, but uh, we never actually used. Um, what we specialized uh, in army not sure why they even had it but i know god had a purpose of me being there i didn't get to serve as long as any of these guys did on here so whenever the the little haters come out all the little trump haters i get them too so when they come out saying oh there's no way you can know all this stuff i'm like well uh the the brain doesn't get limited uh limited on how long you serve but uh but you know I went in with all the right reasons. Uh, I got to uh, serve around a lot of great men, and, of course, we're honoring those today, too. Uh, I got one here with me. Uh, We'll take it off later in the show. But uh, 14 Sierra Air Missile Defense, we specialize in knowing all the uh, enemy and friendly aircraft and also their weapon capabilities. So that's what's uh, whenever people are watching my uh, podcast or also my post, you see a lot of aircraft being put up, all different kinds of aircraft, what they're doing, what they might be doing um and uh, of course i'm a wartime vet uh afghanistan iraq i guess we can go ahead and say syria and egypt i think those will be coming to light here soon uh as people start knowing more and more of the truth of what's been going on uh, as we were talking earlier as well all these great men here uh, we all served in different capacities and all the wisdom and the experience and the uh you know the the leadership that everybody has here all comes together as a collective and it's going to be important for other veterans out there to realize that your service was valuable because you served your country in the Constitution. Uh, but also understanding that everything we went through, there's two sides to that story. And right now we're living in the most biblical, um, historical, monumental time period to be alive, really, and to expose all of the evil in the world, the spiritual forces that we face every single day. Um, so it's very important that that veterans know that. Um, and know that you do have a place. I'm serving beyond my service. Um, and I, I really feel like because of my oath that I took to this nation, I wouldn't have been able to say what I'm saying uh, had I still been in service. Because theoretically, uh, my age, I would still be in had I uh, my warrant officer packet uh, been selected uh, after uh, I was severely injured. So that's my case. I got severely injured um, and uh, the Army decided to fully retire me. Um, so I'm gracious to have that. Uh, but I'm also blessed to be here with these uh, great men. I also have uh, my my dad, who's a Vietnam vet, Air Force. I just lost my uncle yesterday, um, 87 years old. He was Air Force Korean vet. Um, and then my great—I had a lot of great uncles who were service members. Uh, one was a Purple Heart at Normandy, uh, D-Day. Um, so a lot of great uncles who served. My grandfather lied about his age to my age mark. Uh, grandfather lied about his age to get in the army in World War II during war lied about his age to get in. Um, and then my great grandfather was army air corps, which obviously became the air force um, in 47. So a lot of lineage there, son of the Confederacy and also son of the revolution. So all my family dates back to uh, this great nation and, and keeping that legacy going.
1: Well, mate, thank you for your service and all of theirs as well. It's truly amazing. And then on my side, As well as you mentioned, I mentioned earlier, my audience knows this, ladies and gentlemen, I did not serve in combat, although I have many of my family's history on both sides, both my parents, their parents had to flee Nazi-occupied Europe, my dad's side from Poland and the Ukraine, my mother's side from France, and my mother's father and his two brothers signed up as soon as they got to shores of Canada, and my grandfather, my mom's father, flew B-17 Lancasters in the Air Force through the entire war. His brother, who was also in B-17 Lancasters, was shot down in the last hour of the last day of World War II. My great uncle served on the beaches of Normandy as a doctor and went all through the war in the MASH units. And my other great uncle lied about his age. At the age of 14, he said he was 17 years old and he joined the 3rd Brigade of the Tank uh, 2nd uh, tank infantry, excuse me, not tank infantry, tank brigade in Canada. And when he landed on Normandy, on D-Day, he was 17 years old then in real life, but on paper, he was 20. He was a tank commander. He made it all the way through, including the Black Force. And this is a segue as well through all of these men used to be here, have all family who have served and even the women who are with these men have family who have served. And this is a segue now into the historical part of our D-Day tribute, which also opens up everybody to number one for you and your children who are listening or watching, that this is again about the tribute and then a history lesson for all of you in the audience. And then the second latter part of the show is about the relevance to what is going on today and what you who are watching this, you can help us win because everybody takes part in literally ending the war of all wars here today so without further ado why don't we open it up gentlemen and we share a little bit about what happened in d-day and about your families' backgrounds and then we take the next part after the midpoint break to the relevance of today what people can do
6: I just thought I'd add a joke in real quick to show people how veterans we have humor along with being serious. Brad, I'll save you with a tank infantry. Every tanker thinks they're infantry, so it's I know, okay.
1: Right? Yeah, I'm infantry yeah. and they always, they always thought it was so hard. They got to put their missiles <laughs> on agencies when we're training and they're like, we're living so hard in our air conditioned heat events. Listen, I had freaking go out at minus 40, right? in Arctic warfare training, but you know, it was just a couple of years for me. These gentlemen have done their lifetime. So we'll turn it over uh, to you. So well done. Yeah, you're a tanker, but uh, God bless everybody who served anyway. So well said, mate. All right, gentlemen, who would like to uh, take the first crack of the cam about the history lesson? We have so many learned men here,
3: Lieutenant
1: Colonel.
6: Let's go with the let's go with the Lieutenant Colonel, the Colonel. Who let's throw it on? Let's throw them under the bus.
3: Now right. uh, well let's 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 uh, look Australia's contribution was minimal compared to the rest of you so I, I, I don't feel qualified to kick this off so in terms of context though as we know this was the landing against yeah. the Atlantic wall by the Allies after much planning. Now the Americans wanted to go in a lot sooner and the Brits held them back and said best practice first let's land on North Africa. Uh, let's let's get this whole system organized. Because the Americans uh, were very enthusiastic, but they didn't have the hard skills, planning skills that the uh, the British High Command did have. So there's a series of landings on North Africa, for example, and also um, on the, the beaches of Calais, just to the to the uh, to the east, to practice the actual procedures. And some of them were quite devastating. In fact, the Canadians suffered terribly uh, during one of the rehearsals. Too many objectives insufficient support and they learned some very valuable lessons because an amphibious operation is one of the most complex you can uh, at that level and certainly at that time in history because communications weren't as they are now but an amphibious operation is exceptionally difficult because of the variables not just the joint nature of the operation sea air and land and special ops going beforehand regardless of that um, working with the various resistance groups but then you've got the weather because the weather is going to impact on your air the weather is going to impact on your naval forces. And that impacts upon the entire operation. In fact, as we know, D-Day was supposed to be the fifth of June, nineteen forty-four, and the weather was so poor that Eisenhower, the uh, the commander of Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, Shafe, delayed it twenty-four hours to ensure they had the best possible chance. Now, the window for the landing was only three days because you've got to optimise the tides, the moon, and the weather, and they had a three-day window in which to to land and Eisenhower himself wrote a letter in preparation for D-Day being a disaster accepting full responsibility for the disaster if it took place now thankfully as we know as history showed the uh it was a successful landing and so that 11 letter was never required to be sent but just to set the set the stage Rommel had set up the Atlantic wall had uh, set up defenses to prevent it the uh, it was obvious that that was where the Allies would be landing. A a question was whether it would be at the Pas de Calais, which is the closest uh, piece of European land to England that made sense to land there, to spend as little time in the water as possible. And uh, and so, as we know, in um, deception operations, you don't try to persuade an adversary of a fact that they don't believe. You reinforce the fact they are prone to believe and then... As Patton said, hold them by the nose and kick them in the ass. And so what they knew, they knew that Hitler believed that the part Calais was going to be the target. And so they reinforced that establishing an entire false army with General Patton allegedly in command. They created radio traffic to simulate an entire landing force uh, on the, uh, the south coast of England. And this was being picked up. And again, and on top of that, a lot of the German spies were captured and turned. And so the uh, the intelligence going back to Germany continually reinforced the fact that the Pas de Calais was going to be the, the landing point. And it made sense. It really did, because this is such a difficult operation. As we know, the um, the main target was Normandy. And it, again, it's it's not hard to pick where the landings are going to be because a landing such as this, of this scale, requires certain geographical qualities in terms of ties, in terms of the, the gradient of the slope of the beach, in terms of the inland, in terms of the disposition of the enemy forces on that. And so there are only a limited number of destinations. But they successfully persuaded Hitler uh, that part Calais was going to be the landing point, so much so that the I think it was the 15th Army Group was held in Calais even after the the landings began at Normandy. The uh, the German High Command believed it was a a feint, which is a false landing to deceive the enemy. They believed it was a feint. And so Hitler would not release the 15th Army Group from the Calais region to reinforce the defenders at Normandy because he believed that the main attack would be coming at Calais. And so during those critical uh, initial hours and days, what could have turned into a, a disaster... Through extraordinary planning and execution at the at the headquarter level, allowed the uh, the troops to actually make the landing on the sixth of June, as we said. After Eisenhower delayed it for twenty four hours, and and hit the deck running. Now it was preceded very quickly, and I'll stop here and let the others jump in. When people see images of the landing, um, without any word of a lie, that there was brutal. There was it was a, a butcher's yard, as one described it. But you must understand, it was also preceded by the airdrops, allowing the airborne forces to get behind the lines, so they could control the routes, uh, the roads, the bridges, retard uh, German advances if they could, and uh, facilitate the Allied movement forward when the time came. <laughs> we'll get into that shortly. That was a busted flush because the airborne drops spread all over the place; didn't quite work as planned. And then there was also the, the bombing that took place. And then the naval gunfire support. So the, the actual target was pounded pretty heavily. But as always, you've got three options in the military, bad, worse, and bloody awful. And, and so that sets the scene, I guess, from a from a, a general perspective of what was going on. And then uh, we can throw in some specifics after that. But th- that should kick it off nicely for everyone to continue on.
2: I can pick it up from there. The um... That was really good, good intro. And I do, I do want to, I think we do need to emphasize that um, the element of surprise on the Allied side was absolutely paramount. And they, they put a lot of effort into, um, into keeping the attention on Quebec like like Rick said. Um, they created an entire, all of the signals traffic, all of the, um, the footprint of an entire another entire army it was called the fourth Army and, and uh general George Patton was the commander of that ostensibly and it really took the Germans attention away uh even all the way through um through the original d-day itself on the sixth they weren't even able to mount uh, a counter-attack until after June the 8th three days later so um the uh the way the assault unfolded was the first stazan like Rick was saying were the airborne forces. The, um, you don't hear about this one as often, but uh, just after midnight, they actually, it was the uh, British 6th Airborne Division. They landed between the Orne River and uh, the Cone uh, the Canal uh, in gliders, an entire division in gliders. Um, and they, they took their first two critical objectives, two bridges over each of those, those bodies of water in the first 15 minutes after landing. And then right after that, they took out key gun emplacements on the coast. And this was all on the left flank of the entire assault. You got a picture, when you picture the assault, looking at it from the water on the west side, Utah Beach being the farthest out with the uh, U.S. 4th Division on there. Omaha was the next beach uh, towards the east. And that was two U.S. divisions, the 1st and 29th divisions landed there. Then you had Three Allied beaches, Gold Beach with the British 50th Division, Juneau Beach with the uh, Canadian 3rd Division, which took a lot of casualties on that uh, on that operation, and then Sword Beach with the 3rd Division. Just after midnight on on uh the on the start of June the 6th, the, those leading elements came in, uh that 6th British Airborne Division, and then about 1220, the um the 82nd and the 101st dropped on the Cotentin Peninsula. Um, really had some hard times. Way on the right flank of the entire operation, the, uh, they had a lot of confusion about the drop zones being wrong. The guys basically they they operated with on, on with mission orders. Basically, they knew what their objectives had to be. They rounded up in little groups of men and took off to do to take their objectives and actually accomplished most of what they were done. Uh, what they had to do. Um the and basically that was taking out bridges, railroad bridges, and key road intersections. And so uh, even though with the confusion on the American side with the 82nd and the 101st, First, they 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 still managed to uh to get their um to get their objectives taken. The main landings started at about 6:30 in the morning um on the uh with the US 7:30 in the morning on the British and Canadian beaches, um, and one one piece I, I wanted to I did want to bring up was on the western side of Omaha Beach. There's a piece of ground that's key. It was key to the German defenses. It was it's called Point Du Hoc, and it's a it's about a, a, a hundred, 85 to 100 foot tall sheer cliff with uh, that juts out as a point into the channel. Germans had six. Six one hundred fifty-five millimeter howitzers on that point. Four of them were, were entrenched in encasements, so real hard to get at. Um, and so it became a key a key um, objective of the assault forces because those guns could cover all of Omaha, Utah. They could cover all those beaches with uh, their their range was twenty five thousand yards. So it was a critical thing. The attack on Point du Hoc took place with. Um, it was three companies of rangers from the second ranger battalion, about 225 men. And when you think about the importance of this, of that particular objective, it's kind of staggering to think that 225 men and 10 landing craft are going to get up on those, are going to get up on that beach, climb hundred feet, hundred foot sheer cliffs, get on top of it, and take out the 125 German infantry and 85 artillerymen that were on top of that point. Um, but that's exactly what happened they um the uh, the rangers in those landing craft they um they got off sh- off co- off course in in the channel like a lot of the uh, landing craft did they actually got to the beach 3 miles too far to the west at the um at the uh, yeah at the uh, uh at the next the next uh, point over but 3 miles away from Point of Hoc so they had to turn and basically Run parallel to the beach for three miles, all under fire from the German emplacements on cliffs, to reach Pointed Hook and then get to the ground in those boats. They carried the, the, the particular uh, assault force of Rangers had done an extensive amount of specialized training for cliff climbing. Um, they, the the uh, the boats they came in on were um, were were specially equipped with with rocket launchers. And uh, the, both both mechanized in the boats and hand carried by the by the rangers that were, that carried them in, and it was all uh, specialized to uh, with rockets to carry ladders up over the edge of the escarpment with grappling hooks, and then rope ladders and uh, scaling ladders come down that come down the escarpment as you can see in the picture, and the rangers climb those those uh, those ladders to get up to the target. Um, the uh, the point was actually Point Point du Hope was actually taken and the and the uh, German emplacements um were neutralized there by noon on D-Day. So you gotta that's there's a lot of work. At the uh Rangers found out when they top when they got to the top of the cliffs that the bombardment had been so heavy from the naval, from the naval uh, bombardment craft outside in the channel that almost all of the um all of the navigation points and the recognizable uh, things on the ground that the, they, they knew were going to be their objectives were gone, just completely wiped out. And it ended up being just a nightmare of going from shell hole to shell hole to shell hole to shell hole, to shell hole finding nests of German machine guns and troops and clearing that thing out. But they actually managed to clear it out by noon on the, that day. The um, by, by midnight on D-Day, the Allies had put, put ashore just shy of 130,000 troops. Not much German resistance at that point until a couple of days later when uh, they were able to mount some attacks. And now I'll turn it over to the next guy in line.
1: Well, yeah, and Chuck, thank you very much for that and for the colonel sharing this, and you will see in the clips here in the edit, everybody, the images of those Rangers climbing those sheer cliffs when Germans were dropping grenades and turning machine guns over and shooting straight down as they're climbing straight up into that. Now, AJ's grandfather was the second Canadian infantryman to step foot onto Juneau Beach, Right after the, right on the first landing craft that hit it, and he was the infantry commander. AJ, do you want to just bring in some of your family's history, and then as well as Mark, since we're talking about D-Day landings, and then Jim, your father was World War II Navy as well. Maybe uh, chime in here too, and let's also remember there were over three thousand Australians that hit the beaches of Normandy on D-Day as well as Aust- Aussie served in the Royal Australian Air Force and also in the Navy as well under the British uh, Montgomery that was kind of directing things at that point in time. So AJ, over to you and Grandpa.
5: Yeah, thank you. Um, if, I, if I drop out, excuse me, like my internet's been a bit uh, intermittent. Um, funny that. Um so yeah so so my my granddad, uh was Canadian he's born in St John in New Brunswick um he's one of uh six he's one of uh, 16 children uh eight boys eight girls and um he used to ski to school good old days anyway um he joined the the military um and uh, joined the army and then he shipped over to England uh where he was training in the south of UK uh in the New Forest and um, he was staying in a staying in a hotel there, and outside this hotel is where he met my nan. Um, all f- all four foot eleven of my nan. My granddad uh, was five foot three. They were not the tallest family, um, and uh, they, they hit it off. And um, he he got sent obviously to war, and he took part in D-Day landings, and he landed on Juno Beach, and his landing craft landed first. Um, his point man was the first off and he was as a commander, he was behind them. And um they then then obviously like uh went through sort of like the whole D Day clearing a lot of uh, bunkers and stuff like that. And one of the main jobs um that him and his guys had was to take out these machine gun bunkers um that were literally mowing people down on the beaches as they were landing. Um, and I just got this book behind me called Normandy '44. Uh, from my bookcase, which is by a quite a famous uh, British historian called a war historian James Holland, he's written tons of books, uh, and my granddad's mentioned in this so many times because um, what James Holland's done is he's literally taken a section commander from the British on Sword Beach, from an American on Omaha, and my granddad on Juno Beach, and he's literally paints a picture. all the way across the whole D-Day landing process from jumping from one section to another. So there's loads of amazing, amazing things in here. And he obviously spent time at my granddad's house um, with him. So obviously the story is like, well, how did a Canadian end up marrying a British woman and end up in UK and et cetera, et cetera. So um, he actually went through the war um, fighting through France. um, And then this is where he captured the tallest man in the German army. Um, who, funnily enough, just like Operation Paperclip, classic American style, they stole him as well and put him in the circus. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, that, that's he ended up over in the States, like uh, in the circus after that. And th- that picture became quite famous um, probably about 15 years ago where an historian found it and tracked my granddad down. Um, but in essence, what had happened was the, the Germans in Calais were... Building all these uh, concrete domes uh, in, a, in a dome shape, because, so to, to ricochet the common onslaught from the British artillery or the Allies artillery from Dover. Um, so they were shelling right across the English Channel to to northern France, um, and as a result, like they weren't having a massive effect. So they took a team over there. My granddad did, and it captured something like two hundred Germans, and this this gentleman included. And um, the, you know, having a conversation with them about it just really highlights what it was all about. You know, they, they weren't interested in fighting. They got there and it was all quite amicable, quite friendly. Um, and from there, they they then went on um, and went through, fr- obviously, France, Belgium, Holland, and into Germany where the what happened to my granddad was um, he set a goal of reaching Germany. He said, if I get through D-Day, I just want to get to Germany. You know, it was like a, a goal for him. It was a goal for so many other guys. Um, and when his unit, um, the North Shore New Brunswick Regiment uh hit a little town called Capel, and at Kapeln, it's a little town right on the right on the German border. They got absolutely smashed and they were patrolling for a field and a shell landed directly on his best friend, who had basically they basically saved each other's lives so many times for this war, the shell just landed straight on top of him and he was completely gone, red mist. And it was the hole that was left that my granddad jumped into to take cover, um, to basically save his life. And then every now and then he was popping his helmet up on a rifle to see if snipers were taking shots at him. And when he saw that the QRF was coming, he literally jumped out the hole. And he said it, uh, he said he was literally out the hole about five or six seconds, and another shell landed in it. But because he was out the hole, the rick uh, the shrapnel he damaged the knee, um, and he was then. Uh, Kazivaked off the battleground, but it was right on the German border. So uh, you know, the, the story is so so fantastically made and scripted, it's it, it's amazing. Um, but me and my brother, who I mentioned earlier, who's uh, UK Special Forces, we had um the privilege of taking our grandads like on this journey uh and to the uh, the the Canadian War Cemetery in Gruespeek in Holland, where we found Al Daly, his best friend's grave. Um and this was in 2011, and uh, and then we went th- to the exact field where my granddad was blown up, um, and it was a, it was a phenomenal experience, um, and it was actually in 2011. I've shared this on a lot of podcasts, like in that field that he was saying to me and my brother, that the Nazis have never died, and that's when the the kind of little subtle messages started as it progressed. You know, and it was uh yeah, it was truly amazing. Um, a, an amazing guy. And he died in August 2020 at the age of ninety-seven. Um, with lots of, you know, great memories and many, many interviews uh and books and all sorts, you know, written about him and stuff like that. So yeah, the the connection's really deep, like between me and him. Um I I, I look just like him when he was uh when he was a younger soldier, uh both married in our uniforms. Eldest child born outside the country, like there's synchronicities off this off the scale. Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of like a, a, a rough breakdown of uh of my granddad's involvement in D Day. Um he lost a he lost one of a brother on the beaches, and um, and three months after the landing of non-stop fighting, um, his unit were told that they were gonna get R and R. And they were going to come, go back to England. So I was obviously happy because he was going to go see see his English rose, as he called her, my nan. And um, as they were preparing to leave, the unit that took over them, but, uh, his brother was in it, another brother. He didn't even know he'd even joined the army. So uh, obviously communications without our social media back then. Um, and uh, yeah, literally two days later, that their post got attacked by the Germans and his brother was killed. Um, so his brother literally took over his post and died two days later. So this whole story and the near misses and like, all of it's just like so incomprehensible, but uh, amazing at the same time, you know, in terms of a, uh, like a war story and and just what these people went through. So, yeah, and I, I, I laugh as you guys and everyone listening, I'll forever be grateful because they are the real heroes of our times. <laughs> i think uh, brad i'll be glad yeah, so, to go next yeah so it looks like me looks like me and brad are being attacked by the internet demons um so yeah it hey, you major
0: my dad uh served the, the pacific uh, but two of his brothers were at normandy and my uncle joe his younger brother was a frogman in the water during sea mines for the ships. And he saw a lot of the landings. And he saw after I graduated from, or after junior year at West Point, when I had my paratrooper wings, I had a new credibility with my dad and my uncles. And they started telling me the things they saw during World War II, all three, all three started. My uncle Joe was one of the first uh, frogmen, and their big operation was Normandy. So, his job was to clear sea mines so the ships could go in. And he was in the water during the invasion, and he saw very brave uh, LST uh, skippers take people close to the shore. Where they could get onto the beach, and he saw other not so brave uh, LST skippers keep them with, keep men too far out where some men weren't able to swim or bob and travel with their packs on, and he saw lots of Americans drowned. And when I was a cadet at West Point, uh, we learned how to swim with a backpack on in case we were ever in that situation. And it was one of the mandatory swimming things we had to do in order to graduate, which was pretty interesting. His, my older brother, his, my dad's older brother, John, who was my godfather, who passed last October at 102, was an infantryman on the second wave in Omaha Beach. And it took a long time for him to open up about the horrors he saw about climbing over dead bodies shielding himself with dead bodies so he could get uh off the beach and uh and resume his mission. And uh my uncle John was quite a character. Every time he made sergeant he punched somebody so he could busted the private because he figured out that he had a much much better chance of surviving the war as a private than he did a sergeant. My Uncle John was a pretty sharp guy. And uh and Uncle John uh, marched all the way across the Rhine as a grunt, and he served He served in several major battles, and uh, one of my heroes, and Uncle Joe was one of my heroes. Now, my dad, besides being the middleweight champ of the Navy during the Second World War, which was quite an accomplishment, was in the... Um, Marshall Islands when they got bound by the Japanese. My dad was a pretty gutsy guy. He left the bunkers during the bombings to rescue guys and drag them into the bunkers. And uh, I had the honor of growing up with such brave men. And Uncle Joe on my mother's side was in the 1st Marine Division at Incheon during the Korean War, which was their amphibious operation was a little bit like... uh, d-day but my uncle my uncle joe who were in the battle uh to the bravest man i ever met and i'm really proud that i got to know
6: him so well that's awesome yeah i, I guess i could tell my story real quick that way we i think brad's still uh absent right now but I I just can't, uh, like, I guess I'm one of those, I guess we're all built differently, but I get so emotional. Every time I've ever walked by the TV um, and there's a D-Day, anything on, uh, I remember one time I walked by and I just, I could not help my emotions. And I just, because I I just, I just wish so many Americans would understand that feeling and that understanding and that appreciation, especially like this past weekend. I mean, this past weekend, I was I was out on uh, the Gulf, the Gulf of Mexico. And I just wonder how many people really, truly understand what that whole off day still. I mean, it, it happens every year and every year and every year and every year. And when I was walking up the beach, I'm sitting there looking at this beach as if I was walking on the beach as a normal day. I mean, if you just flip the coin, you flip the perspective. And you look at every beach the same way as those men, especially my great uncle and all of my grandfather's friends and different people who stormed those beaches. If you just flip that picture around and really picture that feeling. When I went to college, just before I went to military, when I went to college, uh, there was a man who who stood and held the door every single Sunday morning, every Sunday evening and every Wednesday. He held the door for everybody. He greeted everybody with a smile. And a pat on the back, if you were a young man, he'd pat you on the back. He'd tell you about God and Jesus. And he never put his religion on you in a different way. He just lived his life like that. And I never really got to know him. I was in college, and I didn't go there every single Sunday. I tried to go as much as I could. But the one Sunday I chose to go on, it was Veterans Day. They were had a... uh, they had done a little, I guess, about a two-hour special sit-down with him. He had cancer, and he was losing his voice. He had some form of throat cancer, and he was losing his voice. It was real high pitch. and he sat there and talked about when he stormed the beaches of Normandy, and he talked about how he said everybody talks about this split-second life. He said, you hear people talk about a split-second and he was like, some people think there's no such thing as a split second, but he said, I learned there was a such thing as a split second when I was on those U-boats going in. And he was like, when that door, when that door dropped, he was like, Before that door dropped, we'd already been told that morning we had lost thousands of men. And he said that our colonel looked at us and told us that two out of three of you will not make it home today. And he was like, That the lump that hits your throat and a grip that hits your heart. And the breath that loses, le- leaves your body, he was like, it's indescribable what that feeling's like, even though, like he said, it's kind of like the John Wayne quote, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyways. Like he said, we want to be there. We absolutely are going to fight for our nation. He said, you can't help but feel that feeling that I'm never going to see my mother again. I'm never going to see the green grass of Texas again it was like i was never going to see my girlfriend back home again that's the feeling you felt even though you were still willing to go um uh, and i've heard that story by i mean i was streaming streaming tears my great uncle talked about it purple heart at normandy you know how it just fallen left and right you know and, and and i just i do it takes my breath every time i think about it because this, it was a whole different kind of war then you know it's it's like so different and it's like you said, they're the greatest group of heroes. It's just like my grandfather himself, lying about his age in the middle of the war to go join, to fight in the war. Um, and uh, that that mindset, I had a radio call today, matter of fact, and the guy was asking him, you know, how do we get that back in America? How do we reinstill that in the hearts of, of these younger generations? And I'm like, well... You know, my dad says the Air Force, here's the where you flip the, the humor. My dad always says money talks and BS waltz. Uh, right. So uh, it's like I said, President Trump specifically has uh, the 1776 report, which he has said over and over and over and over again, he's still going to do it. It's still in play. We're going to remove funding from schools who will not teach our history. Um, and now there's one thing you can't teach. You can't teach appreciation and you cannot teach respect to people in a different kind of way but i think that that if we just try to reinstill that because personally all these stories like aj's grandfather i mean i every time when 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 brad played taps my i mean chill bumps you're supposed to feel that feeling you're supposed to feel that that sense of pride in a different way not that not pride in the sense of we should want to go to war but it's like general you know, it's like it's, it is like patton said he was like I do expect every American to feel that we're going to kick the the enemies. You know what? Um, if we're if we're asked to do that, um, right? But we should never want to do it for for bull crap reasons. But at the same time, I mean, I can't walk by the TV and not swell up with tears when I see those doors drop. Knowing like that that old man in Tuscaloosa, Alabama said, the, "You couldn't have been a coward that day. The bullets were hitting the water." The bombs were hitting the water. You couldn't even been a coward if you wanted to hold back and hold back in the water. Like you, you just had to know that moving forward, God either had a plan to protect you, or you were going to fall right there that day. And I mean, that's a whole different kind of lump in your throat when you really think about. You couldn't be a coward that day because the bombs and the bullets were hitting the water, um, and you had to move forward no matter what, and know that God had a plan um, in your life. If you survived that day,
2: there were men that men with the Rangers on Point of Hope that uh, actually testified after the battle and after, sometimes after the war that it wasn't necessarily just bravery that was getting them to reach objective after objective in which they got up on top of the bluffs. Yeah, the German artillery was coming, was was trying to to range on them, so. It kept getting closer and closer. And the only way to get away from the artillery was to move forward and not back. And they were all laughing at each other at the end of it because it was like that. I don't think necessarily we were that brave, but I don't think we wanted to get hit by that artillery that was approaching up on us. It's an interesting story.
4: I think uh, Brad is Brad's missing from the chat at the minute, but um, I'm happy to go ahead. Go back. ahead, Mark. You're, right on. you're, you're back on. Yeah. Only on
1: the phone, the laptops fried. So laptops fried. Okay. So go
4: right yeah. Ahead. Yep. yeah, I was just I was just gonna share um, my granddad's story on, on, yeah. on D Day. So uh, I used to uh, I, I knew his time was was getting short. I was in the military at the time, so I used to try and chat to him about uh, his war experience uh, and what he'd been through um, before before he passed, you know, and it was it was then too late. And um, so I was asking him about the whole D-Day because he, he in true uh, veteran fashion, he he never used to talk about it. So um I, I got him talking about it one 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 day and um he basically said um that they were they were on, they were going across on the landing craft uh to to one of the beaches. Uh his landing craft hit another landing craft as they were as they were going in and it damaged the uh, the gate on the on the on the front of the uh, the boat so they then got to the the beach and couldn't get the the front of the uh, the boat down so they had to climb over the top of the, of this thing uh, he then he then made it um across the, uh, the the beach onto the other side i think they all did they all managed to get to the other side um so they they all made it and then he was he was attached to the artillery at the time. So he was, he was then in northern France. And he said he was setting up the the forward guns like one morning. He was saying about five o'clock in the morning. And uh, he got shot. And this is like a revelation to me because none of the family knew this. <laughs> he just, he hadn't talked about it. So uh, he got shot um, when he was sort of setting these guns up. It hit his belt buckle and ricocheted and then came out of his clavicle so it sort of went all the way through and then uh, missed missed the major stuff so he survived he got flown back across to um i think it was selly oaks in uh, in in birmingham like the the uh, the hospital uh then his dad came and visited him so he was his dad was in the first world war in the trenches so he was he, he was treated there in birmingham and then he then he got um sent to Kafili, little place, tiny little place for R and R. So uh he was recovering there. And uh he said, he said, he says, I didn't know this. He says, but your Nan came to visit me in kafili He says, well, I didn't know. So and he would actually he'd in true Brit fashion, he he'd he'd done a bunk and uh, gone down to the local pub and he was having a he was having a few pints when Nan came to visit him and he wasn't there in the uh in the accommodation so uh i was just like oh, wow amazing amazing <laughs> you know? and it, uh, just just uh, touching on um something you said ricardo just about the it it, just, it must have been horrific you know it, it, people nowadays have no idea how how bad that must have been you know going in on a boat like that a lot of these guys just hadn't seen any combat experience they were very young you know a lot of them were dying and drowning just the the weight of their webbing was like drag dragging them under the sea and then they they couldn't swim you know they were drowning and then they were just getting mown down on the beach and um i think it's it, it, it must have been horrific and uh, you know i'm not a fan at all of tom hanks or for obvious reasons but the the movie the movie he did I think is 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 a good depiction of how horrific that must have been to to, to go on that on that beach landing at the time so um uh, we're all blessed to have um you know we we all benefit from that from that if that. I
3: could jump in on that mark that's ex- that's a that's a really good point and just linki- linking to what Derek said earlier about how do we imbue our young people with this sense of Honor and pride, because it's such a it's such a um, a distant event from them. Now I'm lucky, like you. Uh, I grew up with stories around the table. <laughs> They're on the wrong side of the war. Let's just put it that way. So I'll give you a couple of stories. But hearing stories from my grandparents, uh, one was a a major. He was an engineer with the Italian fascists, and the uh, the other grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a commissar with Tito's partisans. And so just as a, as a young boy listening to the stories of, uh, you know, the the commissar, he and his wife, and uh, they had their young daughter, my mother, and uh, they were fighting. And my grandmother, she received an award from the Yugoslav government, in fact, for her services during the war as a partisan. And she was beaten and uh, uh, had a collarbone smashed by a German Mauser. as She was running messages between the various uh, partisan cells. They used to use them for messages, and she... She's a tough old bird. Oh man, she was a hard, hard woman. Uh, my grandfather, her husband, was a very quiet guy. and I, I know a number of you can relate to that. This was the gentlest, the gentlest of men uh, because he, as a young man, as a young father, had seen and done so much. And whenever he saw me, he'd, he, uh, he'd say bello di nonno, which is granddad's beautiful boy. And he'd give me a hug. But the gentlest of gentle souls, but uh, a genuine hard ass. I'm sorry and that's what I love when I see the old photographs of these these old these old warriors in their uniforms and they just look like gentle old men but they were they were tougher than most most of the kids looking at those pictures then on the other side we had my um, paternal grandfather as I said he was an engineer with the fascists and his brother my great uncle was a tank troop commander and there's some great stories even there and this is what's important to mm-hmm. to share with our kids whether they're our stories or somebody else's and in our case, we're lucky because we had our own stories. And um, my grandfather uh, was travelling through his one of the towns where he near where he grew up, so he knew a lot of the people there. And he saw a train, and he heard this train was taking a lot of the townsfolk up to a, a work camp, a labour camp. And, and you knew that the, their life expectancy was not going to be very long, it was heading up to Germany. So he raced up, drew his pistol, put it to the engineer's head and said, uncheck all the uh, these uh, cars and let them go. The engineer chose uh, the smart solution and he, and he let all the, the villagers go. And so he was a local hero for saving the lives because these were soldiers. These weren't murderers. These, there's a big difference. Anyway, down the track, <clears throat> excuse me, down the track, he was then charged um, for doing the wrong thing. And his brother, the tank troop commander, heard about it, drove in on his tank, literally leveled the gun at the... Uh, the courthouse and said, you shoot him, I'll shoot you. And once again, it's always nice having a bigger barrel. And uh, the two disappeared on his his vehicle. So there's these wonderful stories that I grew up listening to. So you can imagine the standard expected of the firstborn son of of these grandfathers, what I was expected to do. It was never put on me. But as a young man, you hear the stories. And, you know, a, a man's job is to prove himself to himself. And in the process, you become what you're supposed to become. Now, in absence of people's own family histories, it's incumbent upon all of us to pass these messages on and not leave it up to the the, the TV show to to show the the stories that they want. Because invariably, it's sugar-coated. It's got some agenda. No, it's brutal. It's hard. And the reason we're winning this war, just like that greatest generation did in uh, the second war, and I've said this to my my compatriot, Dave Graham, many of you uh, many of you who know him. Now, Dave and I is a concreter from Wollongong, and there's a point to this story. He's a concreter from Wollongong, and other, other circumstances he and I would never have met. And yet, here we are, brothers from another mother. And what we have in common is this. We're both men of God. We're both willing. We want to save the country, and we are both willing to give absolutely everything in the achievement of that mission. And and that well, that's what binds us together. And you've got to keep it nice and simple and let people know. And this is critical. This is critical to the the people where the young men and women that we're raising today. And I'll, I'll just make this one point because it's very important in the Australian context because we had, I think, 3,200 involved in D-Day, 500 with the Royal Navy, 1,000 with the Royal Air Force, that's the British Air Force, and another 1,500 in supporting... Um, supporting the Air Force in other ways. And I, I think about 12 died, actually, in the actual landings. But the point is this, and this is critical. We're building this new nation. And i to link today, today's discussion with what we're doing today and link it back to D-Day. We're building a new nation, we're building a new world. Now, most of the world doesn't understand this. They think the new world is gonna be something like the old one, but just slightly better with a few crooks. No, it is fundamentally different. It will be, it must be. Otherwise we create the same conditions which will allow another set of megalomaniacs to take over the planet. We cannot allow that to happen. And in the straightest sense, um, I'm driving very hard. We're gonna have a constitutional convention in 2024. We're gonna decide for ourselves by whom and how we'll be governed. It requires an intelligent, informed community to do that. But part of this goal of ours is to reach back to 1944 where these men fought and died for something. We have to create this new nation, this this new country. One country, one people, one flag. And the flag is important, not because it's important, but because it is. And here's why. Those Americans knew exactly what they were fighting for. Those Brits knew exactly what they were fighting for. Because there was a history that they had and that flag represented. But if you go back, to 1776 in the American context, when they first grabbed their muskets, these woodsmen, these cobblers, blacksmiths, tailors, lawyers, they grabbed their muskets and went off to fight the greatest superpower that ever existed, uh, and who were being supported by the, the German Hessian mercenaries. They had no flag. They had no declaration of independence. The war started without any of this stuff. And then old glory was designed, but it didn't have any meaning yet. It was just a red, white, and blue flag. It was a nice flag, but it had no meaning. And it was, the, it was the sacrifice and the will that those men and women back then infused into this flag that today means so much that quite rightly will make Derek tear up. And I'm the same. I see a, I see a sea of red, white, and blue. I am moved because I know what that flag now means. But at the time, it meant nothing. It had no history. It was it was the men and women that infused that flag with so much meaning. And that's why that's critical. And in Australia, just to make a local context for the Australians listening in, we will have a new flag soon. And it will mean nothing to you. Because it'll just be different colours. It won't be a bit of the old and a bit of this. No, it's going to be brand new. But it is our sacrifice, as demonstrated by the Brits and the Americans and the Canadians on on the Normandy beaches. Our sacrifice must infuse this new flag of Australia with the same level of passion, emotion, of courage, wisdom, faith and love. That when in 50 years they look back at this new Australia, they will be moved to tears because of what we did here. And so, again, just trying to link up this this need to, to share this history, to create this emotional connection with the past, to understand what happened and why and know that every generation must do the same. Every generation must burnish that flag with more meaning, with more passion, with more, more intent. And so when it's run up the flagpole, you don't have to tell the kids to be silent. They are silent because they want to be silent. And this is, again, the big lesson from this Normandy uh, discussion we're having. That's why the men on Normandy did so well, because they knew what they were doing and why, regardless of their age and regardless of the enemy they had to do what they had to do and we've got to recreate that passion in our people to make sure this never what we're facing now in terms of this global war for the world it never happens again amen to that um gentlemen thank you very much for uh
1: bearing weight as my laptop's completely fried we had um bishop o'connor was going to uh, share a prayer with us and then we also have at the midpoint here a very special gift by way of Colonel Chuck Sellers. Jim, would you mind saying a prayer for everybody here assembled, especially given what we've just covered? And then Chuck is gonna share something very special with us after this. Thank
0: you. Uh, I'd I'd love to share a prayer. Um, Gentlemen, this prayer is very important. It's uh, the law of encroachment prayer. This is the prayer that protects us. We are all targets because we honor our forefathers who fought so bravely in places like Normandy or Bastogne or the Marshall Islands. The law of encroachment is we have the right to be sovereign souls and free. And we have enemies that try to curse us. And we have the right and God's laws to be protected. So, Father God, we call upon you to dispatch the holy angels to remove all spells, curses, and hexes and all operations against us, all the loved ones, and all who hear this podcast. We ask this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's beautiful, thank you. And Colonel, would you like to tell people about the prominence and of what you're about to share with everybody here, where it goes back to in history, and especially also where you have shared it at certain funeral services of American service members?
2: Yes. um... This song, it was written in 1965 by, excuse me, Green Beret Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler uh, in Vietnam. Uh, he was wounded in 65, came back to the States for a recovery. And um, he actually, the song actually got published in 1966, Ballad of the Green Berets. Um, it went up to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 uh, uh, song chart. Stayed there for five weeks in March and April of 1966. And um, Staff Sergeant Sadler actually uh, debuted this song on TV on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1966. Um, It sold nine million copies when it came out as a single. And I have to admit, I was 10 years old. I bought it. It was the first record I ever owned. And all I ever wanted to do after this song was join the Army and be in Special Forces. And just thank God that that's exactly what happened in in my heart. So here we go.
7: Fighting soldiers from the sky, fearless men who jump and best silver
2: can't even tell you how many funerals I sang that at for uh for guys that we lost in action and um that's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do uh besides burying friends was sing that and not lose it at one of their funerals so that thank you
6: definitely so
3: thank you Chuck Beautiful. Great! I love getting together with uh, with ex-soldiers because people have this idea that we're these automatons, unthinking automatons, because we all look the same. And when you dive into each one of us, we all have a history. We all have a story. There is depth and breadth and imagination and capacity beyond people's expectations. So seeing seeing Chuck sing that—that's just brilliant. You know, a Delta Colonel, man. <laughs> and uh, that's that is just brilliant, Chuck. That's been the highlight for me. That's. It's just that 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 sign that the people should realise that soldiers, we're just people like everybody else. We're the same fears, desires, wants, simple simple needs: marry, have kids, raise a good family. Yet, Whoa. as Sullivan Balu as Sullivan Ballou wrote in that that magnificent letter to his wife a week before the Second Battle of Bull Run, where he was killed, he feels the these chains. To his family, yet even omnipotence couldn't break, and yet this need, this desire, this feeling that he must serve the the uh, serve to protect the constitution for which the founding fathers fought and died. This this inexorable draw forward. It's the same. We 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 are torn. Soldiers are torn between home and hearth, and a sense of duty to save those around us. So, thanks, Chuck. That was brilliant.
2: Thank you, sir.
1: That's absolutely gorgeous and thank you Ricardo for sharing that too because for the children who are watching this or listening this with their parents, I hope that's truly happening as this is broadcast in a piece of history with these incredible men here. It's a segue into where we are now because as we move into this aspect of the Tribute Show, the Department of Canadian Veteran Affairs when veterans are calling up the suicide hotline, they're being told to drive to the nearest hospital and get medical assistance in death because they are now a problem for society. Just like we saw with the Nazis. This is happening, homelessness among American veterans is skyrocketed. It's an average of 23 to 50 American veterans commit suicide each day because they are not getting help. And so Derek and I are re-announcing that we are writing a song when the tribunals are over, it's called Raised Right. And when that song gets published, all of the proceeds go to veterans organizations around the world because they need the great financing. So any benevolent veteran organization that you have, you can put it here. And folks, I call your attention to the description of the show in the link, at least for the Sovereign Soul Show, under the name of each of these gentlemen is an organization they support. So for example, with Colonel Sellers, it's been Gold Star Families. For myself right now, for the kids, which is coming up between now and July 4th weekend in the United States, 2023, it is the Sound of Freedom movie. So anybody chooses to look at the description, For these gentlemen's names, will be an organization they're attached to for a charity. And that's what's really key today, is because we still have to care for each other in community, being a common unity. And where we go, one, we go all is galactic. The focus of this show is primarily earthwide, global right now for all of you. So, what is it you can do in your community? Because the cabal, the deep state, has literally launched this assault in particular on veterans too and those who are serving because they have signed, as Derek has said many times, Title Ten to defend against enemies, foreign and domestic. We all had our own versions coming in the Commonwealth. I can't speak exactly to the UK and with Lieutenant Colonel Ricardo Bosi in Australia. But that's exactly why I volunteered, because I saw something going on in genocide happening. And I knew my family's history and I volunteered and signed up to go and attempt to do that. So it's really important we take care of each other and we take care of our veterans. And I turn it over now to anybody else who'd like to chime in as what it is, gentlemen, you feel people can do now who are watching this, children that are watching this, 11, 10, 12, 13, hearing maybe about all of this for the first time in their lives ever, because it's not taught in schools anymore, this history. And they also do not give platforms to men like you, because, you're toxic according to a certain ideology.
5: Toxic. I, um can I can I pipe in there, please? Uh L president Thanks. Um please do. So, so like work hmm. I actually work with teenagers, obviously. I've got my uh got my own under 18s uh football team or, or soccer team.
1: AJ and I are having wonderful issues with our laptops and internet today. Yeah,
5: sorry, sorry, I I mentioned earlier, like, it's it's quite intermittent. So, um, yeah, I work with these uh, amazing young men. Um, But one thing I've realized, and I'm getting a lot of uh, teenagers coming to my talks, because it doesn't matter whether they're British teenagers, American, Australian, Canadian, they all know all this shit already, right? That they're trying to have, like, everything's just trying to, like, to be pushed on them. And That's why they're struggling so much in all these schools because they're having all this left-brain bullshit information like pushing on them on a daily basis. And it's the same blueprint in every school, in every country. So it confuses them, it dumbs them down, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But they're like they're beyond that. And at the same time, they've got like the, the the biggest red pilling machine called TikTok at their disposal. So when they get on a school bus after being indoctrinated with loads of crap, they're getting on a, on a bus and they're be, they're watching some 18, 19-year-old totally debunk everything that they've just been taught. So they're in a really like um a a really difficult place at the minute. And so like this is me talking to those youngsters on you know as a collective is that like we totally get it. Like and we know that like what you're going through because like what they're going through is like none of us went through that in teenage years, what these are going through right now. So, these have had to go through like lockdowns, sitting in front of a computer trying to be taught this information as well, being put through that experience, um, which is now, I don't know what it's like where you guys are, but like if you pay attention to it, you see the amount of young people, like 16, 17, that are coming out the other side of that. And us, that there are such high elevation compared to any of what we were at that age. And, you know, so so the kids watching this, we know that you get it probably more than we do. And uh, that's the beauty of this all. And, and for me, everything's been about the kids. And I know you guys have And the Derek, Brad, Ricardo, the, the conversations we've had many times before, has always been about the kids. And, that, you know, they are our future and everything comes back to them. Like everything that we're doing right now, all the podcasts, all the hours, all the campaigning, Australia One, all of it, it, it all comes back to the same thing. And it's protecting the very thing that's like taking our future forward, that's going to drive our future forward. Um, and, 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 and I guess the message is just know we got your back big time.
0: One of the things that I think would be very helpful is to remember a couple of things from history. The charge of the White Brigade and Pickett's charge were these very, very brave men put honor above everything else if there's one thing that's lacking in society these days especially among the politicians except for people like ricardo is honor there's no honor in washington dc it's a cesspool there's no honor in ottawa it's a cesspool there's no honor in london it's a cesspool in the american the british the Australian the Canadian people deserve a lot more than cesspools. And it was the brave men like in Pickett's Charge or the Charge of the White Brigade or our forefathers and grandfathers who were on D-Day or the other horrific battlefields of World War II or some of the battlefields that we've been on. These We were there because of we were men of honor. They were there because they were men of honor. And we're being served by people who have no honor. And that's why the Australian One movement is so important and the mega movement is so important. And I'm damn glad that I have a Second Amendment because I may have to protect myself against some dishonorable people. They do not have the right to make me take a jab that will kill me or any of my loved ones. They don't have the right to tell me what I have, what I can do. They're not the ones that are served. They're supposed to serve us. And and we all should be serving our fellow man and God in whichever way we know God. And all this other bullshit is just bullshit. Men shouldn't be wearing dresses and women shouldn't be wearing trousers because that's not the God that made us, who knows everything, knows what gender we are. And there's only two. And all this other crap is just designed to screw us up and screw our country so that we don't have men who are strong enough to fight for in future wars. And when we don't have any men strong enough to fight, there won't be any countries. But as long as we have honorable men who know what it's like to make the sacrifice, these terrible people who hurt children in unspeakable ways and put others on drugs, so they can control them and make them slaves. I mean, if you're a drug addict, you're a slave. These people need to leave the planet. And I'm glad to be associated with men like you who want to help them leave. And I think it's the Christian thing to do. Agree wholeheartedly.
3: Jim, you're my kind of bishop. (laughs) <laughs> I love
0: it. <laughs> Thank you. I love every broadcast I hear from you because m I wish you were running for senator in Virginia, where I live.
6: Well, it may be me one day. You never know. I don't know if I'll take on the Senate, but we'll we'll see if if I'm needed there. So. There's there's a there's a much needed, uh, you know, attitude with that. Like we say, you know, I tell people all the time, don't don't worry about what the naysayers are saying out there that, that you know, it is it is us that has to uh, to step up. But also, like AJ said, I mean, that is our future. Uh, and, that, you know, the Southern boys, the Southern boys, especially down in the south south regions of America, you know, it's our. We have, a, we have a way of looking at conservation and also passing it down. You pass it down, you pass it, but passing it down is also passing it forward, right? So many people need to understand that. And like you said, nobody's going to come here and tell us what we're going to do and what we're going to, you know, that's what the very thing I was trying to show people during 2020, I'm like, first off, I already knew all the stuff we're talking about and stuff I outlined with the FCDs and the military operation, but the flip side to it for the normies you know, my dad, uh, he knows it now. But at the time, I was like, it's prevalent that I show my rear end like I did. I was in this store, this little, you know, Barney 5 came out of the office way in the back. We were already almost out of the store, right? Just had to come out there and flex their, flex their power. And, oh, sir, you're not wearing a mask in the store. And I'm like, well, first off, I'm right, right near the door, right? I mean, we we're already on our way out. I'm like, you wasted about 200 steps when I only have like 20 left to get out of here. We were on our way out of the store and the camera could show that. So, um, and I just couldn't handle it. Uh, And it's probably, uh, probably can go back and find that footage if, if they could go back to that certain time period. But I walked about five feet out and my dad just kept walking and I just, I punched the wall and I walked back in. I'm like, you know, this is the very thing that. This is the very thing we do, we liberate children, we liberate women from suppression and oppression like this bull crap. Can you not see that, right? So I got a little passionate and I'm like, how can people, I mean, really think about it. Oh, the greatest pandemic in the world and this little thing's gonna save you? I mean, that that's the level I couldn't understand. It wasn't the fact that people might've had true fears of, sickness and health, things like that. It's just that you think the greatest pandemic in the world and this little cloth is going to protect you at that st. I mean it wasn't the fact of fear. so it's like trying to get people to understand that the it's the American veteran I have to give a shout out to the Marine Corps out there for this fact. their commercial on our TV is probably the most accurate commercial when when everybody 99 percent are running away from danger, it's the vet it's the it's a military personnel who's running to danger. Right. It's a it's a whole different mindset and a whole different heart. But you won't know that until you're pushed in that situation. You won't know if you're truly a, have that first responder heart, no matter what kind of first responder you are. I don't know what it is. But ever since I got out of the military, I, it seems like I'm a first responder on everything. I've seen three heart attacks in front of me in random locations. Uh vehicle go off a ravine, smoking, going to blow, had to pull them out. Right um so you won't ever know that until you're putting that now i'm not saying you know you have to be a veteran to obviously have that kind of heart but once again it is the american veteran that we're talking about today that that it's just something it's something there, something a little e- extra that god gave every heart of every man and woman that's put on the uniform and don that uniform and step stepped in that position and but people do need to understand it is the children that we have to get to the most to say look not cramming it down your throat This is how America was established. This is our foundation. This is our history. This is how we sustain that. It doesn't have a thing to do with how you worship. It doesn't have a thing to do with what you look like, but it has everything to do with the foundation of this nation and how you have your freedom. I tell people all the time, you're only as free as your surroundings allow you to be, and guess who allows that? The American veteran, right? So, Amen. I love the word pandemic. Pan
0: is the ancient god of deception. And the word demic comes from the Greek word demos, which means in us. So we have the ancient god of deception, who some of us call Satan, in us. you got to be kidding me. We're supposed to be a Christian nation. We should have god in us, not not the devil. This is all a bunch of crap.
6: Right. It is.
1: COVID is divak.
0: Yeah, Divac, another name for Satan. Mm-hmm. We got to wake up. And Pride Month, write out Pride Month and look at the middle letters and see what you see. D-E-M-O-N, yep. D-E-M-O-N, Demon. is right in the middle of Pride Month. Yep. We got to wake up. Well, the other thing, uh,
6: so the, the other thing we got to address is this, is like, I, since we went this far, I just did this to a doctor a few weeks ago in Florida. He's like, well, I want to see the evidence. I'm like, well, dude, here you go. <laughs> here it is, .gov, Everybody forgets the origin of things. Well, like you're talking about, that word has an origin, right? That word wasn't just created just this year, last year, 2020, 2019. That word's been around a while, right? Our words and numbers have meaning. Everything has symbolizations such as the Bible as well um, and things of that nature. So people have to understand the origin. And it's all these radio shows I'm going on. Boy, my publicist, they're throwing me right in the fire. with all. And they're supposed to be conservative radio shows. These guys have no clue what's going on, right, by actual laws and orders. And most of their TV shows talk about fearless pursuit of the truth. And you drop the truth in there, and they get mad at you. And I'm like, well, that's what the law says. I'm sorry. I didn't write it or pass it, but God gave me the ability to interpret it. But a lot of this pandemic talk, right, the demon, the devil, but- when people go back and look, March, people never want to put themselves in the position of when it was going on, right? So, Donald Trump's executive order, March 27, 2020, that went well, first one was March 13th and then March 27th. So, he hit two right in there and he federalized 1 million National Guard active duty March 27, 2020, three days later. He's in a press conference. This is all typed up, all established. And I told the doctor, I'm like, go look here. Here it is, .gov site. Donald John Trump, when people say he endorsed the jab, he did not endorse the jab. You got to go back and look at what he was talking about. 36 million doses of hydroxychloroquine. And he went to a military installation for his treatment, right? So things had already turned at that point. 36 million doses in March 2020 was a lot of doses at that time period because we didn't know any more than what we knew at the time. But when people actually take themselves back and understand that, look, we, we, our family, our friends and certain people put too much trust into the federal government, puts too much. And people don't realize, like I explained to a radio guy today, there's two powers in the U.S. There's a the military and the federal government. Those are separate. And the Military Justice Act clarifies that. It specifically clarified the very first piece of paper in US history, thank God, our Supreme Court, before they went into a continuity of government, clarified military separate from civil laws and courts, separated president, commander-in-chief, and separated commander-in-chief from Article Three, which is the federal government. Right. And so people, they just see that little thing that they're they're really we're living through the greatest, most biblical, monumental, historical sting operation in world history. And why wouldn't you want to be on the uh, that part of it? Like I just but at the same time, that is why we're here. We're in a different kind of war and people need to see this as a spiritual warfare first. Then it's an information warfare second. So structure is good. We just have to create that balance again. And that's what our founders did our founders established military separate from federal government for a reason once again the 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 military they could have taken a president the oath of office specifically is the oath to the constitution not the president and not the officers appointed over us if the president and the officers ever abuse the constitution the military generals and the ones that uphold the constitution can remove that president can remove those people from from that structure or that system of which man created anyways. And I think people struggle with that understanding. That's why we're so, um, you know, structured. But that's why we're also so, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the word, but the Second Amendment is so prevalent to us is for the fact that our founders wanted us to protect ourselves from tyranny of all costs. And it also runs all the way up to the presidency, That's why the military was separate and separated from the federal government. That's why the the Supreme Court doing what they did in 2016 and writing that before they went under to a cog in 2017, they passed it during 2017, they, Congress, right? National Essential Function. Mm -hmm. So people would understand that simple concept that the military was established first in our nation. It was established to prevent wars, not start them. And then also to understand that if, if anybody, went against the Constitution. They were supposed to be removed from violating that Constitution and violating their oath. And when Americans, 335 million Americans, realize that 535 members of Congress have all duped everybody and you put too much trust and faith in the 535 members versus the other way around, that we control them, when people realize that, then they'll start to wake up. But sorry, I went on my little spiel there, but... Mr. Jim, you, you you inspired me there a little bit. I'm glad to inspire you.
0: It's a great medicine. And people can make that themselves. It's real simple. Two and a half liters of water. You put the peels of three grapefruit and five lemons. And you cover it. And you gently boil it for three hours. You let it cool. And you pour just the liquid in the mason jars and you take a shot or two every day and you got hydroxychloroquine, you got a great medicine that not only takes care of viruses, but it takes care of just about everything else that can go wrong in a human body.
1: And thank you very much, Jim. Remember, Mark has just been traveling the world. So out of all of us who are here on the Zoom, he has literally been in multiple countries over the last few months so you have some really key insight, I think Mark would be great to bring to the forefront here too. Um when you chime in. Every single day you're in a different city as well. And watching riots, watching people stand up, we the people stand up. So I'll put it back forth to everybody else here for final comments. And if AJ, um, you're really keen, mate. Go jump in and ahead there, my friend.
5: Um it was just to reiterate on what you guys were saying then about like the uh is everything we've experienced over the last few years has been in a major, major attack on the human consciousness. But what it's also done is it's elevated it to a maximum level that people have never experienced in their life. So like us beings here, amazing essence specimens that we are have uh, been brought together for a reason, like to do this podcast. That wouldn't have happened if the last three years hadn't happened. So it's important to look at it, like uh, look at the lessons and not the loss. You know, that like I've probably had uh, the the best thing that's ever happened to me is the last three years. You know, it's um, yes, there's been people that come out of your life and there's people that have come into your life and there's people that have gone out and come back in and everyone's experiencing that. And that's what this is all about. Um, But at the same time, it's like if you can understand like just how powerful your mind and your body is and what like the makeup of it is, you'll understand what the last sort of three years has all been about. In terms of like our, our actual uh, our energy centers like our chakras are the human consciousness like and you can clearly see from from that once you understand it like what what each part was designed to do so making you stand six to eight feet apart was all designed to stop you feeling each other's auric fi- you know strong auric fields like making you wear masks was all about covering the throat chakra the chakra of truth like and 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 funnily enough the medical colors of the medical mask the same color as the throat chakra like they rub it in your face literally rubbing your face right um and then obviously the the, the shots and the tests are all designed to calcify the pineal gland the third eye to stop you having that intuition and those knowings and then obviously we, last but not least we have corona virus corona equals crown is a virus of the crown chakra to keep you disconnected from who you really are um, and then, uh, like the lifestyle is designed to keep you in the base three chakras—your red, orange, and yellow—you know—and keep you down there. And then, while you're down there, what are you marketed with? McDonald's, Hooters, Pornhub—all the same colors are the very things that keep you rooted into that very essence. Like, and it's just trying to educate people to what that's all about. So, if you can, like, just take a moment to step out of the the programming, which is Netflix and playstation and all that kind of stuff um and like really look at look at your essence being like who you actually are and who you can become like just 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 learn about it and and want to know more you know and the funny thing is the younger people are actually exploring it uh which is the amazing thing and just like piggyback off that and just like realize there's something bigger and better out there and you don't need to have been in the military and like certain things and seeing the best and the worst in humanity, everyone's seen it with their own eyes the last three years. You know, you, 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 got, you, you got the resident of the United States, Robo Biden, who's like walking around destroying the country. And, um, you know, you, you've seen it with your own eyes. You don't need to have been a soldier to, to witness that. So once you understand just how powerful you truly are, you can see how big this vast minefield is, but also see where the mines are. Because up until now, everyone's just been stepping on all these mines, getting injured. And um, I, 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 whilst their loved ones have been tr- us, have been trying to show them, that you know, the vastness of this minefield. Um, so it's just a case of putting yourself in that place where you're like, actually, hang on a minute. All these systems are crashing around me, left, right and centre, for a reason. Why? It's not a nice place to be. Well, where's the good place? It's over here. And that's literally all we've been trying to show people. Every single person on this call is literally just trying to be showing people what the minefield looks like, where the minefields, are, where the mines are, but also what's on the other, what's on the other side of no man's land. You know, the beauty, the paradise. That's literally what we've been trying to show people. Um, so just, yeah, just just continue on that journey, I guess, and um, and just just start learning a bit about yourself because everything that's been designed up until now is taking your mind, your body and your soul away from that yourself. Yeah. That's awesome.
1: Derek, final wrap up message with you. And we'll go through everybody here before our
6: uh, finale. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, just encourage people once again, the only way, the way you empower yourself is to read. And if you're like Reed from Texas who doesn't like to read, then you got to listen to some of us who can outline all these things. But uh, it's been pretty cool. Uh, you know, uh, Colonel, uh, you were there at the, uh, you were at, there at the show in Texas. Brad, you were there. I don't, I don't know if you remember the guy who did walk up and said, my name's Reed and I don't like to read. So I appreciate all the competitive videos. <laughs> <laughs> I, <remember that. laughs> I told Reed, he, he emailed me the other day, I said, Reed, you, it'd be probably pretty good if you write yourself a book or something like that while I'm giving you all this publicity, but it is really that. And and I think the other thing is bridging the gap with people understanding the heart of a veteran and the heart of a soldier. Um, a lot of people, because of the spiritual warfare, because of the information warfare are having you know trouble understanding why there's people out there. Who are not making millions off of this, uh, or making some kind of crazy living and how we could care so much about you. Um, and I think that's just getting to know once again, getting on YouTube and, and reading or listening to stories of veterans and hearing stories of veterans. There was a veteran that changed my life. Um, and I tell people, I tell veterans all the time, I don't think we tell each other enough. Thank you for your service too. I think we just kind of expect it when we get around each other in a different way, but. You know I thank veterans all the time for their service, uh, but there was a veteran that I listened to on a uh, YouTube show, and he he had lost his wife and children and mother and aunt, or so, there was a it's about five in one accident, lost them all, and he asked his preacher, would he ever be happy again? And thank God, his preacher was like the bishop here, or or someone like uh, the colonels here who's lived a little life and had a lot of wisdom, and and the most. Uh, Beautiful words this person could say was like, well, I don't really think it's about being happy right now. God spared you for a reason. God has a purpose for you. And when you find your purpose, then you'll find your happiness. And once I learned to put God in front of me and live what he wanted me to do, he t- turned and put me a different direction. But when I went in the military, I had full, I mean, I was, I had nine letters of recommendation for selection of warrant officer. Um, and I was severely injured before then. And God had other plans. Um, And it took me a while to understand my purpose in life. And I think when people start learning to to just let go and let God and just don't overthink too much, uh, but the only way you can really empower yourself is to read or to to have the discernment to understand what people are giving you. Because everything that we give you and uh, provide you with are things you can tangibly go look up and to understand that operation and then understand the heart of a veteran and while we would want to lead you to those places and out of the mines, as AJ said, out of the minefield, hey, don't walk over there. That's that's dangerous. Um, and understand why we care for you. Um, and that's just the heart of a veteran. That's the heart of a warrior. That's the heart of a soldier. But Colonel, the colonels here and everybody, they have wisdom, right? And the major here, they have wisdom and they have life experience. That's the other thing about our founders. Our founders weren't a bunch of young 18, 19-year-olds beating their chest Want to be all big and bad. They were men who had lived life. They had seen life. Like my dad always said, I, I wasn't born last week on a pig farm in Iowa. So, and I've lived a little life. As the major said, Mr. Jim over there said the, earlier about, you know, God ordained this. He gave us this. We're sovereign people. We are here to do a bigger purpose and a bigger plan. Um, And that's the fulfillment you're going to get right here when you're doing something to pass it down, but also passing it down is passing it forward
4: yeah the um the the, the travel was like it, it was it was it was interesting yeah it's been a ma- a mad couple of months for me i was i was sort of um do on the on the security side of a an an american team i won't say the name but we were we were literally going city to city um every every day was a new location and it was to uh to arenas as well so we were like putting a show on every day. So um, I did a couple of weeks in the US, saw that side of things. And then it was uh, four weeks in France, then uh, two weeks in the UK and then two weeks, uh, two weeks in uh, Spain as well. So you sort of see each country uh, and how how things are and you sort of seeing how you're picking up on the atmosphere in each country and each each city as well. So uh, all of that was really, really good um, to to get a barometer of what's going on. So in France, they, um, you know, the, the they don't take any shit in France. They were like, they were basically uh, they don't like Macron. I, I I can tell you that. So they were. Um, I I walked out of the hotel one night and it was like literally the whole street was closed off, and they were burning burning the rubbish bins and stuff and. Um, the police were trying to contain it so we, we walked right into the middle of that protest um then there was i mean you had like scorch marks on the tarmac where they'd been burning cars out you know and uh all the all the shop windows had been um been broken in some places interestingly they were breaking the windows of like it was like banks and stuff you know so um they were they were specifically targeting that type of that type of place not not your mom and pop sort of stores. So all of that was really interesting. Um, and then uh, another interesting side note was, you know, I I, I like watching everything on Rumble. That's the uh, is it, it's, it's the go to for the, the, the truth stuff. And um, I couldn't access Rumble in France. That was all that was all censored unless you went through a VPN. So um, they've 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 tried to shut down Rumble in France. Um, but there is a workaround, so um, yeah, it was it was it was interesting as well. Sort of going to the UK, I haven't been to the UK for a, for a bit. Um, it'd be good to hear your views on this, AJ, as well. But we were sort of different arenas, and um, it was interesting because, and it was this was commented on by um, a couple of the guys I was working with. All of the, all of these arenas seem to be like ran by. Uh, By women on the security side of things and they weren't um they weren't no experience in law enforcement or military either so it was almost like they were trying to um you know uh sidestep any strong male influence and um they were like uh, at one location it was it was literally like um like a transgender um woman that was like running the show and it was like, I was like, okay, I, very, I, I was just picking up on like, there's like a, a passive aggressive sort of behavior, you know, with in these places. But, um, so all that seems to be going on. Then it was like, it was interesting seeing the immigration in France as well. UK There's like a lot of immigration is going on, uh, and Spain. So you definitely see in these, these cities, changing um quite quite a bit but i came i came away actually with like i mean i'm i'm seeing a lot of positive things happening as well i'm, I'm a believer in the whole nasara jasara um that so i i think the the old financial system is gonna is gonna crash it, it's crashing as we as we're as we're watching almost um janet yelland has just said yeah the the, the dollar is basically toast so I think we're gonna we're gonna move into this like new new system. I'm I'm a believer in that. So um, I'm seeing real positive changes happening. And if the if that does happen, I mean, debt, debt is usury. It's it's all um, it's all it, it, it's, it's it's fraud. You know. So um, this is how they keep us controlled. Uh, we're we're all uh, we're all debt slaves. But I I see this um, this is all big changes happening. And um, positive changes happening, so I'm seeing more and more of that. I, th- I think we're close. You know, great grateful for any comments on that. It, the it, um,
5: just just a quick one I was saying there, Mark. Uh, yeah. I was speaking to um, Brad about a few weeks ago. I keep seeing the number 47 everywhere. Like everywhere I go, I keep seeing 47, 47, 47. Guess what's guess what's 47 in the periodic table?
3: Mm-hmm
5: silver
4: oh really yeah interesting that is mm. interesting
6: yeah. there's been a lot of call signs with 47 this week matter of fact bold 47 yesterday um i love it uh, yeah, so I've, so I've been seeing a lot of 47s mm.
4: nice. yeah precious precious metals i've been i've been stacking a bit of silver um precious metals and iso 222 compliant crypto tokens xrp xlm that's all good, all good in, in in my books.
6: But yeah. The state of Texas will be the first gold gold-backed digital currency, September the first, twenty twenty-three. That, that's not far off. I mean, we know that that'll go by like that.
0: Well, thanks, Brad, for hosting all this. And it's been an honor to be part of this group with such distinguished gentlemen. One of the things that I remember from the Revolutionary War was the Black Robe Brigade. The Black Robe Brigade were preachers grabbed their guns, and fought for their country. Now we have preachers who preach the church of happy and do nobody any good at all. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite hidden prophecies in the Bible. And why I don't understand why these preachers aren't telling people about this to wake them up. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall as lightning from the highest heights of the heights of heaven, depending on which translation you have. Now, when you look at what Jesus actually said in ancient Jewish, by looking in Strong's Concordance, the word for lightning is word 1299, which is B-A-R-A-Q, Barak. And the word for the highest heights of heaven is B-A-M-A-H. In an ancient Hebrew, O was a connecting word. Now, why can't preachers tell people where we are in the biblical calendar, get them to wake up and get them to stand up and be strong? It's probably because they're the weakest people in the world. And it's about time they start serving Jesus and starts instead of the collection plate. That's my uh, closing remarks.
1: Awesome, Jim, love it. Machine gun preacher. (laughs) Ricardo, the soon to be commander in chief of Australia, ladies and gentlemen, please (laughs) sir.
3: Well, we'll see, that's a long way down the track. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute honor. And I mean that it's, it's, and we've been able to speak at a level of erudition and wisdom, which is not common. Uh, and so I hope this has been informative and fun for a range of people. The last thing I want to say to follow on from Jim, <laughs> my new favorite bishop, is this special ops, we target strategic points. So we hit a small target, get a big result because we're basically lazy. We don't, we don't <laughs> want to run through minefields and artillery and barbed wire. We've got to leave that to somebody else. We'll, we'll hit a small target and uh, and watch a massive effect. In this battle, that strategic approach is to develop a personal and strong relationship with Jesus Christ. If you do that, if you do that one thing, everything else requires effort, but the struggle is gone, and I mean it. Uh, somebody said earlier about find your purpose. That's what Mark Twain said. You know, the, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. And whatever that why is, please, as I think it was Derek, find that purpose. Everyone has got it. It's different. It might be, not be the one you want. Well, that's that's not up to you. The big fella has a plan, okay? And he will present to you a set of circumstances, and then it's up to you to decide how you're going to respond not react, but respond to that set of circumstances. But seriously, the single strongest thing you could do for yourself and your family to get through this and then create the world so this never happens again is develop that strong and personal, and I mean personal, relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the best mate you'll ever have. He is just extraordinary. He's always available. His line's never busy. <laughs> so give him a call. And get that strong personal relationship with him. He taught us how to live, how to love, and how to die. He's the best of us. You couldn't find a better role model. And he's certainly mine. And he's, a, he's a pretty tough standard to live up to. And I fail daily. <laughs> and he doesn't mind as long as we keep trying. So there you go. That's my wrap-up, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much.
1: Beautiful. Thank you, Ricardo.
3: And Chuck, Colonel. Um,
1: Final messages for everybody here, the men, the women, listening,
2: the children? Um, I would just want to say that just pray for the, the, the strength and the understanding to be able to spread, even just one person at a time. Spread the understanding that it is a spiritual struggle that we're all in, but it's a real struggle. but but it's spiritual and just to help people understand that. And Like I said, even if you only go one person at a time and open their eyes that way, one person at a time, eventually, hopefully it will make a difference. That's beautiful. Thank you. And to the
1: divine lions and lionesses out there who are listening, you're in for a real treat. You have had a real treat the entire time. And um, gentlemen, if I could ask all of you as speakers with the exception of Chuck, just press mute because we are getting feedback. If you could just mute yourself, that'd be great. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, you've had an entire treat being here. And we just also want to acknowledge another veteran who has come and went, who is also associated with some of the men you see here on the screen, is former US Marine Corps Sergeant, Leonardo DiMarco who is a Korean War veteran, and also the father of Derek's business manager, Natalie DiMarco. We bring up this gentleman in honor his sacrifice, laid to rest in honors at Arlington, because Natalie last night, who's unable to join us, we were attempting to do a duet, which you're gonna hear delivered now, but Zoom will not take her voice because she literally is a trained operatic singer and she hits professional octaves. Absolutely. And when we were last in Texas together about seven weeks ago, myself, Derek, Chuck, his lovely wife, Michelle Sellers, whose father is also a United States Air Force veteran served in Korea, is now no longer with us. Natalie and Chuck sang a duet of Ave Maria. And so an honor to everybody here who is watching in honor to all who have paid the ultimate sacrifice in every conflict and every war. God bless you all. And we now finish this tribute to all who have paid the ultimate sacrifice and are serving us still today. Like these gentlemen are with Colonel Sellers singing Ave Maria, which is a song he is also saying at every funeral over to you, Colonel. And then we'll end this call. Thank you.
2: Basically, we'll do it with a, with a song prayer. <clears throat> Ave
7: Maria, grazia plena, Maria, grazia plena. Maria gratia plena Ave gratia plena Dominus tecum Benedicta tu in mulieribus et beata Get benedictus fructus ventris, ventris to
1: Thank you all for your service, gentlemen. I am absolutely blessed. Ladies and gentlemen who are watching and the children, you can find all of these gentlemen in the description below on the Sovereign Soul, anywhere else. And please between now and July 4th, buy a ticket or share a ticket with somebody for the sound of freedom. It's about saving the children and waking up the masses so we can live in peace, love, prosperity and abundance which is what everybody who's paid the ultimate sacrifice for under God's light has been fighting for for eons. Thank you, gentlemen. God bless you all. It's been a true honor. Have a blessed evening and to Ricardo a
3: day ahead. Goodbye, everybody.